leading IT security experts speak out on the pressing cyber issues of the day. Coming up in this special edition of the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. Today we bring you excerpts from interviews with leading cybersecurity practitioners and thought leaders who presented at the recent Information Security Media Group's Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit in New York City. First up is David Hahn. He's Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at the publishing company Hearst. And he led off the two-day summit with a presentation that addressed the adverse impact cyber incidents have on a company's reputation. In a video interview with ISMG Global Events Content Director Tracy Kitten, Han explains that CISOs can get buy-in for cybersecurity initiatives if they can show top executives how these security programs will help the business achieve its corporate goals. Focus on your key things. Even like, you know, employee training, you may not be able to get 100%. Focus on what you can get. Focus on the areas that you know are going to be high risk, right? Can I make some wins? And I think you can show, because what you have to be able to, I think, really produce is that security should enable the business, not hinder it. Because if they see you as kind of like the police who will stop you every single time, guess what? They're going to avoid you. So I think that's the mindset that you got to have, which is, hey, how can I go to the cloud? How do I utilize you know, some kind of uh, you know, service that's now available in the cloud? Well, I'll show you how to do it, right? So really promote that versus trying to resist it and trying to block it. And I think if you're with that, then they'll invite you to the table, right? Say, hey, let's do this. Because I think in this day and age, everybody understands security is a concern. Right. But not everybody may understand that, hey, it could be done in a way to really help promote our business versus slowing us down, stopping us. So I think that's the key mind shift that you have to take to always be part of the business there. But if you're put in the back and be part of the IT team and infrastructure and you know, things like that, then you're never going to get to see the table. And I think that's the first thing you got to do. One of the hot topics at the summit was cyber insurance. A number of myths surfaced about cyber insurance, which Richard Bortnick addressed. Bortnick is a cyber liability insurance lawyer at the firm Traub, Lieberman, Strauss, and Shrewsbury. In a conversation I had with Bortnick, he dismissed as a myth the contention that insurers do not pay out cyber insurance claims. He also characterizes as a myth the belief that small businesses do not need cyber insurance since hackers would not target them because of their size. But as Bortnick explains, hackers see smaller businesses as low-hanging fruit that don't have the cyber protections found in bigger businesses. Thus, they're more susceptible to phishing attacks. But Bortnick identifies one myth he contends is in fact true, that CISOs don't like cyber insurance. There's a finite amount of money in each company. There's a finite amount of money dedicated to cybersecurity. The technical people say, give us the money and we'll put up the wall. And you don't need to buy insurance because you're throwing your money out the window and we can avoid the problem. Anybody uses the word prevent, they don't know what they're talking about because you can't prevent a cyber attack. Scotland Yard's been hacked. The Democratic National Committee's been hacked. Everybody's been hacked. You can't prevent it. CISOs and other technical people will say, give me the money, I'll deal with it. They can't. They can't do the training that is necessary to share people because so much, um, so many breaches or so many incidents are employee errors and are employee mistakes, unintentional. It's not hackers. It's not somebody, an insider, malicious insider, a rogue employee. It's just pure negligence. Insurance companies will help train those people. The insurance is a necessary backstop if something unanticipated happened. And even more than anything, who saw malware coming? Who saw ransomware coming? 
who saw fishing coming? The technical people didn't see it coming, so no matter what they put up, it wouldn't have prevented that because they didn't know what was going to happen. But the insurance, which is broad in coverage, would, in most cases, cover that, the new unanticipated event. We now turn to the recent WannaCry ransomware attack and the contention that victimized companies could have been spared the harm it caused if only they had patched their systems. But as Bank of the West Deputy Chief Security Officer David Polino told Summit attendees, as well as to me in an interview, applying patches to vulnerable systems isn't as easy as many believe. You can't always take care of vulnerabilities by patching. You know, think computers, workstations, servers, it's pretty straightforward for patching those. And I think as an industry, most of us have that worked out. But when it comes to other types of systems that may run an operating system like an ATM, which is essentially a computer with a cash dispenser, a card reader, and a vault hooked onto it, that might be a product that you buy from a third party. So you can't just patch that without consulting a third party or getting the patch certified by the third party because it could cause that machine not to work. And uh, third anymore. parties aren't always cooperative, are they? Sometimes security is not the biggest priority for, for third parties. Also, once you patch a system, most of the time you have one piece of infrastructure that applies the patches, and normally you want a separate piece of infrastructure that validates that those patches have been applied. As part of this event, our validation infrastructure wasn't able to check for the presence of a patch, so we had to work with multiple third parties to not only have it patched, but also ensure that our validation system was able to verify that the patch Does it have to be that difficult? Um, it's, it's a challenge, but whenever, the more the Internet of Things comes on, I think this challenge is going to get greater as opposed to get e getting easier. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Now, on to the right framework. The National Institute of Standards and Technology Cybersecurity Framework has won many adherents since its publication three years ago but it's only one of many frameworks that compete for the attention of enterprise security practitioners. As Tracy Kitten points out in her interview with former longtime AT&T senior VP and CISO Ed Amoroso, many enterprises struggle in deciding which ones to adopt. Amoroso responds to Tracy's observation. A lot of interest groups are really want to promote a particular bent on a framework. And I'll grant that if you have 20 different frameworks, the author of each one might be able to stand up on a box and tell you why his or her framework is better than all the others. And there's no question that you can have different nuances, but the bulk of every framework is about the same. same. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you have 20 nutritionists say, how do you put together a program to be healthy? There's a big chunk of what each one of them will tell you that'll be exactly the same thing. You know, yeah. less stress, um, eat better. So I think in cyber, we need to be rethinking all the time and effort that goes into all those nuanced standards and frameworks. I think that there's a law of diminishing returns at some point. Now, I think the diminishing returns stop after one framework. I <laughs> say so do it once and do it right. Doing it even a second time, to me, is perhaps a waste of time. Perhaps by saying one, I'm being a little provocative because that one is perhaps unlikely. But I don't think we need 20. I don't think we need 30. And if we had time here, I bet you we could list out 20 or 30 that a typical CISO needs to deal with. That yeah. seems unreasonable to me. Yeah. And I'd like to see that number reduced. When we return, we'll hear one expert address the challenges to secure the U.S. election system, as well as another presenter explain why we should embrace, not imprison, American hackers. 
We do not view the hacker community as a national asset. We do not protect and empower our domestic hacker communities. This is a special edition of the ISMG Security Report. ISMG's Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit Toronto, taking place on September 12th and 13th at the Delta Hotel, will feature Art Coviello, former CEO RSA Security, as the keynote speaker. This plus other subject matter experts from Visa, CA Technologies, Carnegie Mellon, and more will discuss key information security topics. Register today at events.ismg.io. Welcome back. Habita Leighton is Vice President and Distinguished Analyst at Gartner Research. In a conversation at the summit with ISMG Senior Vice President Tom Field, Leighton addressed the challenges and a potential solution to securing the U.S. electoral system. We don't really know if the vote was hacked or not. Everyone says there's no evidence when right. you hear officials testify. But what goes through my head is there's no evidence of anything anyways because there's no audit trail, there's no recording. So we do know as Americans that the Russians were hacking into 100 electoral uh, college officials, that they fished them. And I think there were something like 23 states at least that were having reconnaissance. So as an American, we're nervous, and we're nervous about the security of our voting systems, as we should be. So when I look at the voting infrastructure, because I deal with state governments, and I look at the banks, it's really light years apart. The banks have much more money to spend on this, so it's not like the people in state governments are incompetent, it's just they don't have the resources. If I was in charge of securing them, what I would do is start with uh, recording systems. Prevention is very difficult. Nailing down the registration system is very difficult. But at a minimum, let's have a recording of everything that happened on any voting machine and any server that aggregates the votes. Because the votes don't just stop at the voting machine. In many counties and states, they get added up. And as you know from following credit card fraud, the bad guys would go to the servers in most cases, because all the data is aggregated, it's much easier to break in there. So you have to cover your tracks at the local level and the aggregation points. And because it's so hard to put in all this security, and we could talk about what they should do, at a minimum, have a recording. There are systems called EDR systems. Have you heard about those? Yes. Endpoint detection and response. And they're basically a black box. Like if the airplane goes down, you want to get that black box to see what happens, that's what these systems do for security. And if at least if we had those systems, we could go back and see if there was any tampering. After that, I'd move from detection and response to protection and put some basic controls in. So strong authentication and registration of the users. There's technologies in place that I can quickly look at your background, I can quickly look at your face and your driver's license and determine and register you more properly. Finally, we hear from Tom Kellerman. He's CEO of the advisory firm Strategies Cyber Ventures and a global fellow at the think tank, the Wilson Center. Speaking with Tom Field, Kellerman says the United States has the tools to battle the cyber threat from adversaries such as Russia and China, but doesn't always use them in a way that could prove beneficial. We do have the capacity to lessen the amount of colonization that is occurring. Mm -hmm. We have the capacity to mitigate some of the infestations that are occurring throughout our critical infrastructures, throughout our government agencies. However, we do not view the hacker community as a national asset. We do not protect and empower our domestic hacker communities. We hunt them, we prosecute them, we put them in jail. 
whether you agree with that or not, the difference here is that the other major superpowers, the other nations of the world, have protection racket states wherein they actually insulate, protect, and utilize the resources of their cyber hacking communities. Because of that, you know, essentially we're fighting with one less weapon. And, and because of that, until we can go after the dark web communities of our adversaries and dismantle the trust that they have within them for each other and for their foreign guardian, per se, we will be ineffective in essentially dealing with this fog of war. The only way to achieve that will be to go after proactively through the global ISP community, the bulletproof hosts that create the cybercrime hideouts for such information sharing amongst those communities, and going after the forfeiture of the alternative payment systems and the electronic currencies that are being utilized to facilitate the transfer of goods and services that are creating the, the economy of scale that creates the Lord of War that you see in the Russian dark web, the Brazilian dark web, and now the East Asian dark web. You can watch the full video interviews my colleagues and I conducted with these cybersecurity experts at our Fraud and Breach and Prevention Summit in New York by going to any of the ISMG editorial websites. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.